Hello and welcome to the sixth series of our Maritime Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Nyhus, Director Environment for Maritime at DNB. I'm here today with a special guest to discuss what impact all the incoming greenhouse gas regulations will have on the fuel situation for the maritime sector and how we can expect to see the bunker supply industry respond. I'm very pleased to welcome Edward Glossop, Head of Sustainable Operations at Bunker Holding Group, to the podcast. Ed is deeply involved in mapping what the regulatory changes will mean for the bunker and fuel supply industry and how to respond both short and long term. But first, and just to set the scene a bit, let me recap quickly where we stand when it comes to the regulations. As we all know, the IMO revised its greenhouse gas strategy in July this year, strengthening the ambitions with what in practical terms is a target for zero emissions by 2050. The IMO also added so-called checkpoints, for all intents and purposes also targets, for 2030 and 2040. For 2030, only seven years down the road, shipping has to reduce its emissions by 20% compared with 2008 levels. For 2040, the number is 70%. And if you'd like to see a higher number, note that you can add on another 10% for both those checkpoints as targets the IMO should be striving towards. Also, and of particular significance in the conversation today, for 2030, the reduction target is supplemented by a goal of an uptake of zero or near zero greenhouse gas emission technologies, fuels, and or energy sources, representing at least 5% of the energy used by shipping. A lot of that 2030 target will have to be covered by fuel, even though energy efficiency, possibly supplemented by an increased uptake of wind power, could play a significant role. But as you all know, it doesn't stop with the IMO. The EU is also rolling out two pieces of legislation, the Emission Trading System in 2024 and the Fuel EU Maritime Regulation in 2025. These can also be expected to have an increasing impact on the fuel demand picture. And finally, our latest maritime forecast once again highlights that the shipping industry will need to compete for carbon-neutral fuels with aviation and road transportation, and that the production of these alternative fuels needs to be significantly accelerated if the emission reduction goals are to be met. So how's the bunker supply industry addressing these challenges? Let's bring in Ed and get into the details. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great, great to have you on board. As I already talked about in my intro, um, the pressure to decarbonize is increasing, to put it mildly. Um, from your perspective, you know, being one of the industry actors expected to be a supplier of the green alternatives, the low carbon fuels, the zero carbon fuels, how do you see the state of play in the industry? Will the fuel industry, to put it bluntly, be able to deliver what is being demanded and expected of it? Yeah, thanks, Eric. It's a good question. I would say that you know, it's important to remember that the bunker industry is a market facilitator. It's not a market maker. And by that, I mean, we can only supply the fuels that our customers are asking for. It's not up to us to pick the winners, so to speak. So to that extent, you know, we're looking for improved clarity on what the fuel mix is going to be towards 2030. Um, We're certainly planning to be able to offer what our customers are looking for. But from a standpoint, you know, the energy transition and where we are in shipping today, it's different to where we've been before. Um, We're going to go away from burning essentially someone else's rubbish to burning fuels which are produced exclusively for us. And that requires a whole new industry and a complete rethink of 
how we perceive ourselves within the market. How, how, how do, you th- do you think about that in, in practical terms? I mean, how, how are you preparing? Because um, what I'm hearing is that you see yourself as one part of a chain that is actually going changing from the old chain as it were because new stakeholders etc are coming coming in new new fuel suppliers uh, along with new demand pictures and and you of course you're doing this in a highly commercial setting uh, so with a, with a demand for new fuels set to increase so significantly over the next over, over the next coming years uh, you you must be thinking deeply about where uh, where you'll you'll fit into this overall picture. I mean, what is your, um, how should I put this? What is your actual engagement with the various stakeholders? Because obviously you're not just sitting there passively, just uh, listening to uh, podcasts and uh, newspaper headlines. No, sure, absolutely. And we do, of course, talk a lot to our customers. So we, we do have a pretty good idea of what a lot of our um more engaged customers are, are, are more f- environmentally forward-thinking customers are, are looking for. We, we talk a lot about the new fuel mix and the availability of different products. Uh, our, our opportunities, our, our alternatives for sourcing and developing the market. So, of course, we're out there, you know, mapping the market. And as, as you pointed out in your introduction, you know, these are not small quantities of fuel that we need to to be thinking about. Just a five percent. Um, the five percent target for 2030 for very low carbon fuels—that's equivalent of 33 million tons a year of ammonia, or 31 million tons of methanol, or 15 million tons of advanced biofuel, or some kind of blend of the above—and uh, that's not going to be very uh, straightforward to find. That's that's a lot of that's going to require new production to come to the market, um, and you need to think about that. This new infrastructure needs a lot of years of, of lead time to come to market for, for a production facility. You might be talking about five years. You know, For just the barges, for the last mile delivery, we're talking two to three years lead time. And then with some of these new fuels, the, the low-carbon fuels that we're talking about, the especially around ammonia, we still need to put in place the regulations, the guidelines. And that's before you get into the permitting requirements for the actual operation and delivery of these fuels in, in new port environments. Uh, I think if you go back and look at how long it took us to get some of those pieces to fall into place with LNG, uh, it'll give you an idea of the challenges that we're facing with the with the coming transition. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at, uh, it took 20 years, I guess, more or less, uh, from uh, we had the first uh, ferries in Norway coming up uh, to where we are today, where we're finally starting to see some takeoff on uh, real material takeoff on LNG. And obviously, we don't have 20 years in all, on the other fuel uh, fuel types. But it's, it's kind of fascinating what, what you're saying about um, large off, um, offtakes of fuel, because, of course, in a maritime perspective, we, we are talking significant volumes. But in the sense of the global fuel production industry, we, maritime is, is a small buyer in, in reality compared with the total amount of transportation fuels or oil, oil products being used around the world. So on the one hand, we're, we're seeing this is a really big challenge. On the other hand, we are, a, as an industry, a fairly small player in the, in the, big, in, in the big picture. So there's a kind of fascinating uh, dichotomy here. And so my question to you then would be, trying to bridge that gap between being both small and big at the same time. Uh, 
how do the fuel producers take note of the demand signals implicit uh, in, in what's coming here now? Do you guys push them? Is it the invisible hand of the market that they're listening to? Uh, how would that actually work in practical terms? It's a good question. Uh, and I think that there are some mixed messages that are out there right now. I know a couple of my colleagues recently attended a methanol conference where all of the producers were busy talking about um, the shipping industry is the the big hope for the future. There was lots of people presenting graphs and charts showing the number of ships on order and their associated uh, potential uh, methanol demand. But what I would say is, and, and we've seen this the last couple of years with LNG as a marine fuel, is that the order book um, is not a perfect demand forecast. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's perfectly plausible that a, um, a good number of these you know, methanol and LNG dual fuel ships may well continue to run on conventional fuels for quite some time to come. So even if there's a notional demand there, it's uh, it's not something which is necessarily being backed up in all cases with with firm commitments to burning the new fuels, and that creates a real challenge because you know there's there's clearly a significant scaled market to to be tapped into as long as someone can come up with a cost competitive or cost effective of way of producing and, and, and distributing these these fuels. I would also say, you know, the, the, the other big challenge that's in the market now for, for LNG and methanol is, um, is ammonia, because there's a lot of people who are looking at methanol and LNG and bio LNG and saying, yes, this is good. But is there something that's better just around the corner? And so I, I always I think of it a little bit like you know Jaws in the film. You know you have the uh, the the methanol producers swimming around on the beach having a having a nice time, thinking they're having a lovely day out, and something something mysterious and potentially quite dangerous is lurking out there in the depths. Uh, no one's quite sure wh- whether it's coming or not. But I I do see that there's definitely a need for for collaboration and close alignment. We've seen a number of new fuel producers who've come and looked at the marine fuels market and have initially thought that this is something that they want to enter into on their own. Um, gone away, they've taken some time to understand the complexity of that market, and they've come to the conclusion that it, it makes sense for them to work with an established player such as ourselves. So this is quite, you know, a good example of this would be our, our relationship with Yara Clean Ammonia. This is uh, a, a collaboration that we have with them to try to develop uh, first mover uh, opportunities around uh, low carbon ammonia in, in the shipping sector. Um, and we definitely see a need for this kind of collaboration, a, a kind of an end-to-end value chain collaboration to to make these things stack up. In the same vein, Ed, how do you think about what should be available versus what will be available I mean, I guess this essentially goes to fuel types. We, we expect to see a fuel diverse future. We've been talking about that for a long time and think it's really hard to pick winners and losers at present. But how do you think about this? Where, where do you guys place your bets? Well, Eric, we're a fuel agnostic company. Uh, we will supply the fuels that our, our customers want. We're already supplying biofuel in a diverse range of ports. I think we have uh, around 80 ports where we can currently supply biofuel today. LNG, we're already working with a number of different suppliers around the world, uh, and we're uh, we're able to supply today in Asia, in Northwest Europe, also in the United States, and we're continuing to evaluate the locations and and the type of offering that we have in the LNG field space. Um, 
Around methanol, we have recently participated in a number of different tenders and we continue to engage with a number of our customers today to make sure that we have the right offering for them uh, as pertains to methanol for the future. And ammonia, we're also working with a number of different opportunities, engaging very closely, in in particular with Yara, with a number of our customers today uh, to make sure that we have the right end-to-end supply chain. And we're working with a number of suppliers today to ensure that we can offer our customers the right degree of certainty and clarity around the pricing and availability of these new low-carbon fuels. We also recognize that there are some potential challenges in the scaling of uh, availability of e-fuels which contain biogenic CO2. You touched upon this in the recent uh, um, Energy Outlook report from, from DMV, and there is a there's a real challenge for the shipping industry to compete on a price point with other industries, especially also with other transport sectors like aviation. So that's an important point for us to consider and for our customers to to bear in mind with the scaling of these fuels going forward. Suddenly, we have to compete with an awful lot of other end users for the same product. To dive into the weeds a little bit, you know, shift tack a little bit here. Um, when we're coming at this from the regulatory um, perspective, which is my bailiwick, um, the, the shift to well to wake perspective when looking at the greenhouse gas footprint of fuels, that's a fundamental shift also um, for, for the fuel supply industry, I would say, because it leads us straight into a certification issue where we have a, now a very long and quite complex production and distribution chain that now needs to be captured in uh, proof of sustainability or other certificates that you also almost certainly will have to provide, um, whether as a supplement or as a part of the bunker delivery notes that will accompany the, the volumes that you deliver. Now, uh, one thing, of course, is that we, in, in certain parts of the world, certification regimes are more well de- developed than than others, uh, from from my perspective. Um, how do you see this working? Will we be able to have, shall we say, a common uh, platform here? Are, are the supply chains so integrated that the certification will work irrespective of where where the molecules originate? Or do you expect to see regional differences here? I think that there are standards that can be applied globally. Uh, I would say that it's more up to the customers to set the level of expectation. And we do see this with some of the first mover you know, majors, uh, some of our larger buyers who are essentially coming back and telling the market what it is that they expect. And then they're pushing it back to us to, to deliver on that. So we've been through the process of getting a lot of our offices, ISCC accredited and, and audited with DMV. And uh, that's an ongoing process for us. We definitely see that that's going to be an important part of the uh, the market going forward. Um, And suppliers will need to follow and comply with what the customers are requesting. I think that there's an interesting opportunity here for us to think about what form, what shape that will take in the market going forward. How you end up in a scenario where you're able to track from the point of production to the point of consumption, the overall carbon intensity of a fuel. It raises some interesting challenges, and it's something that needs an industry-wide level of, of engagement. It can't be handled by each individual operator, each individual part of the value chain on their own. So having something that's overriding, overarching, um, a kind of an end-to-end sort of platform for tracking and, and uh, uh, managing these products going forward, that might be an interesting opportunity. 
Yeah, we do, do know, of course, that, uh, for instance, IMO is looking at certification requirements, but the IMO will not be developing the certification schemes that are needed. So it'll have to piggyback on something that emanates from other sources um, or, or, is, or is already there. Coming from a certification company, it's obviously of great interest for us to see how this uh, develops. Now, um, staying in the weeds uh, for a little while, while longer, <laughs> different weeds this time, um, when we're looking at um, the f- expected supply situation and the potential difficulty of actually being able to buy the fuel you need when you need it, where you need it. One mechanism that has, we see in other sectors, such as aviation, that can, can help in alleviating that situation is this kind of book and claim system where you and you have a certification system where you, in essence, get a credit for f- green fuel, even though you're not necessarily taking the green molecules yourself, but you're sure that someone else is taking them uh, or using them in different time and space, maybe. How do, how do you see that kind of system? Do you think that uh, would, be, would be helpful when it comes to global compliance, or is this something that's uh, kind of beyond your, uh, your remit to, even th- to think about? We definitely see a role for a book and claim system. And we are engaged with various organizations like the Musk McKinney uh, Muller Center, um, who are working on developing these sort of guidelines and, and uh, a framework. It is something which requires a sort of le- a level of third party oversight. Um, it's not something that we can necessarily shape ourselves as, as an organization, as a company, uh, but we, we do recognize the need for it as an industry. From a personal point of view, we think, we think of course, it, it it would be helpful if we could get something like that. Uh, I wouldn't underestimate the complexities of actually setting it up so that it could work. Um, uh, there is also a lot of other regulatory mechanisms that need to be set up in connection with whether it's uh, emission trading systems or uh, uh, greenhouse gas fuel intensity mechanisms and so on. Um, so um, I'm maybe a person a little bit skeptical uh, to whether or not we will actually get end up getting it, but it would be very helpful if we could. Um, listen, um, time time is running, Ed. And um, any final comments from your side uh, before we wrap up here? Uh, key issues we didn't touch on, obvious question I didn't ask you, economy, economics, for instance, costs. Uh, and maybe as a final kicker, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Will the bunker industry actually be able to deliver what shipping is going to be demanding? Okay, well, let me, let me try and unpack that. Um, I think... Let me start with the financial points of this, which is that, first of all, we probably are going to need to see some kind of market-based measures uh, being introduced on a global level uh, in the coming years. So uh, I think you're better positioned than I am to say exactly where and when that's going to appear. But it seems reasonable that sometime in the second half of this decade, we're going to need to see some kind of um, market-based mechanism uh, to incentivize the uptake of Uh, low-carbon fuels worldwide. That and the cost of the low-carbon fuels that we're we're talking about, especially the new e-fuels, the e-ammonia, e-methanol kind of fuels, are likely to be considerably more expensive than the fuels that our customers are, are burning today. And with that will come an increased requirement for credit uh, for our industry. And the question is a little bit where that's going to come from. We at Bunker Holding are very engaged in developing and improving and expanding our credit facilities towards our customers. But this is going to become, I think, quite challenging for some of our smaller competitors uh, to to be able to do and, and for them to be able to manage the same volume of trade that they have done in the past. This is something that our customers also need to be aware of and, and need to have half an eye on as we go forward. 
Well, th- th- thank you for that. Uh, I, I appreciate that insight. Uh, I, I want to prod you a little bit on the last bit of my question, though. Are you a pessimist or an optimist? I'm an optimistic <laughs> realist. I think you know that, Eric. Um, I'm confident that we can get there. I think that the 2030, some parts of the 2030 challenges are going to be complex for us to achieve as an industry. But I'm optimistic that we can get there if we have the right market-based measures that come into play uh, well ahead of 2030. And uh, I'm quite optimistic that at least for the larger players such as such as Bunker Holding, we're going to be able to have the right product offering for our customers by 2030. Well, th- thank you for that. Thanks for a great conversation. It's been great having you on board here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be with me and to talk about these issues. So again, thanks a lot. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I think we've learned a lot about how the bunker supply industry looks at the implications of decarbonization and not least how it will need to adjust and adapt in the coming years. It remains clear to me that there are some formidable challenges ahead of us and that collaboration is going to be absolutely critical if we're going to meet them. So, what are the key takeaways from this conversation? Firstly, the bunker industry will need to evolve and adapt to meet the demands from shipping. Enhanced collaboration between producers, suppliers, and buyers of fuels is going to be critical. Secondly, there is no single apparent winner in the alternative fuel space. A multi-fuel future remains on the books, and this should be taken into account when thinking about new builds and also for retrofits. Thirdly, complexity in bunkering strategy will increase significantly, and costs likewise and both will need to be managed. Don't forget to download and read our latest Maritime Forecast to 2050 if you haven't done so already. It provides additional insights into what we have been discussing today, as well as much more information on what shipping can actually do to successfully decarbonize. The download is available at dnv.com maritime hyphen forecast, where you also find the link to the recording of the launch panel discussions. Thank you for joining us for this episode. You've been listening to the Maritime Impact Podcast from DNV with me, Eric Nyhus. It was a real pleasure to have Ed Glossop with me today. The maritime industry is a broad church with a range of important actors, and it was fascinating to hear the perspective of an expert from the bunkering side of the industry. These kinds of conversations are crucial in enhancing understanding on our journey towards decarbonization. In our next and final episode of this series, I will take a closer look at the leading example of decarbonization efforts, namely what Singapore is doing. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to give us a rating or review. Thank you for listening.